published a manifesto for evidence-based education and it starts evidence-based is the latest buzzword in education before long everything fashionable desirable and good will be evidence-based and in it you put forward a case for a culture of evidence-based practice yeah now so if there wasn't a date on that piece yeah that, that piece of writing I think it could have been published in the last five years yeah. easily. Yeah. So how far do you think we've come since you wrote that? Okay. That's a really interesting question. Um, I think we have come away, actually. I think it was at that time, there was a very small, there, there were various different movements within, um, so for example, in the cabinet office, there were people who were right. looking at this. There were people working in health, in medicine. Mm-hmm. who had been through a bit of a journey then in terms of evidence-based medicine but that was still a pretty new thing actually it, you know um, I think we sometimes forget that that what you know that was really in the early 90s actually that evidence-based medicine started to get traction and people were looking at policy and thinking and some people were saying there's there's too much of a disjoint and Carol obviously was one mm. of the people with a loud voice in that that group but it was a very small group and it was very marginal and most people in the education research world were unconvinced that this was a, a good thing mm. for um, I, I don't know, all sorts of reasons. So it was, you felt like you were part of a tiny minority, um, very marginal to the mainstream, but uh, absolutely sure that you were right about this and you know you had to somehow get your voice amplified so that other people would hear it and that, I guess that's where all that came from and people started talking about evidence-based there were a couple of I guess key papers that were published at that time and the problem is it's not something anyone's going to argue with is it who's going to be against something yeah. being evidence-based but but then when you actually pin it down well what does it mean and what are you going to do and what are you not going to do then of course you found that that people didn't really agree so it was a bit of a buzzword, and lots of people were signing up. I mean, even even um, people like David Blunkett would talk about being evidence based. He was the education mm-hmm. secretary at that time, or around about then. So it felt to me like it was a bit of a bandwagon that people were getting onto the language of, but not really buying into the the truth of it. Yeah. And I think that continued pretty much in a similar state for. Um, certainly in the next 10 or more years and it was really setting up the Education Endowment Foundation I think that was the turning point yeah so that was the coalition government in 2011 I think well they came in in 2010, 2010 yeah, was it? yeah. Must have been set up so EF I think was about a year later yeah, yeah and you know written into their the EF's DNA was this idea about doing randomized controlled trials and yeah. robust evidence and wanting to inform people about their, what the research says and try and get that to be something that teachers know about and and make uh, you know make decisions on the basis of and that yeah. kind of thing and that combined with them being connected with a good group of researchers who did understand that but also being understanding the whole communications piece which I don't think up to that point anybody had really done so they'd yeah. been good researchers doing good work that was about synthesizing evidence and, and making evidence available and yeah. digestible and those kinds of things. There were lots of projects that had happened yeah. in the meantime. Some of those I'd been involved in, others other people had done. So the toolkit and 
Um, yeah, so things like that. Yeah. I mean, John Hattie's work, for example, yeah. that was around. There was um, the um, the General Teaching Council, GTC, had had a programme of work which was all about um, simplified summaries of research. Yeah, I know, exactly. Okay. And that sort of died. Nobody knew about it. Yeah. And so what they hadn't done, though, was to get the, the publicity right almost or the communications yeah. I guess yeah. to the point where it became a big thing it was just marginal it was there there were good good things there but it wasn't no one was taking it serious I don't know I don't there, there were definitely people who were passionately trying to make this thing get a bit of traction in the okay. system but there was nowhere in the system that it kind of fitted in and there was no appetite for it so there was there was a certain amount of supply but there wasn't really any demand from the system yeah. And that seemed to change with EEF. And is it that the EEF got the, the proposition right? You know, how, how, how you just talk about this to people? Is that the difference? Um, I, it's hard to know exactly what they did. I th yeah, partly maybe just being in the right place at the right time that the world was then ready for that. Yeah. I think it is partly about the way they connected and the, and the communication around it. Yeah. I think it's partly helped by things like um, Ofsted latching onto the toolkit as a way of judging yeah. pupil premium spending so that you know there's the whole policy about pupil premium yeah. again that latched into that there was money attached to pupil premium and yeah. schools had to account for how they'd spent that money and they started to get the idea that they needed to have a story they could tell to Ofsted about that that was in some way evidence-based yeah. and Ofsted talked about the toolkit and that seemed to raise the profile of it and suddenly, well, not suddenly, but over a period of, you know, relatively short yeah. few years, after this, you know, twenty years of nothing happening, yeah, and then suddenly, people seem to be interested in evidence and, yeah. and critical about evidence and thinking about evidence and, and using evidence and uh, the whole profile of it just raised massively. When did the toolkit first come out? So how, right, how so that was. Uh, no, it was. It was in the first version was twenty eleven. Oh. It was originally it was Sutton Trust yes. thing, and we did a. It was a tiny piece of work that, yeah. that we did. Steve, basically, Steve Higgins and I, and Dimitra Kokosaki was was brought in to do the 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 work on it. Um, so literally, just the three of us, and mostly Steve. To be honest, I you know I did help a bit to sort of put it together, and then he he you took were just it on. the poster boy at the end. I you? was a bit, yeah. <laughs> yeah. So and that I, came about from a conversation, what just casually between yeah. the Sutton Trust and Steve yes, and the story goes in the Swan and Three Signets oh, right. Durham, <laughs> that you know we were sat there in the bar talking about the the need to have a. A really digestible summary yeah and and had in mind which reports you know the idea that they they it's a complicated business if you're buying a washing machine yeah but they they do all of the trusted testing independent trusted testing and then they really simplify it down into a sort of you know five stars for this and four stars for that and then at the end of it a best buy yeah. recommendation and that was the kind of model that we thought, well, couldn't we do something like that? Yeah. And because Lee Elliott Major was a journalist by background yeah. before he went to the Sutton Trust, he worked on the Guardian and the Times Higher. Right. And so he, you know, that was kind of his his um, real strength, the ability to take yeah. complex ideas and yeah. present them in ways that that people really connected with. Yeah. 
and so I think actually the combination of the you know the serious researchers wanting everything to be uh, not too simplified yeah and, and then people Lee. like Lee saying well it's got to be simplified you know otherwise no one's going to read it yeah and there were some you know I don't know battles can be overstating there. it but some you know robust debates about yeah isn't that going a bit too far and and in the end I think that produced a reason quite a good compromise yeah between it being uh, yeah what, what had gone before which was probably mostly led by academics and therefore yeah. a bit impenetrable more thinking needs to be done in pubs I think yeah <laughs> um, so I want to talk a bit more about um, so your time at, at the Centre for Evaluation Monitoring and at Durham University you, you worked under Carol Taylor, Taylor Fitzgibbon who mm -hmm. was really pioneering yeah. value added or one of the pioneers yeah. of value yeah. added to what extent has Carol and, and also Peter Timms influenced yep. you over, over the years? Yeah, well, massively. No, absolutely. I mean, Carol's my PhD supervisor. She was the director of Chem, well, kind of the founder of the whole thing. I know the centre predated that with uh, some evaluation projects, but essentially the, the heart of what Chem is was what she created. Mm. And you're right, she was... Uh, nothing like that existed anywhere in the world. The whole idea of value-added was... Uh, I think you know she could claim to be one of the inventors of that essentially yeah. and uh, she didn't just invent it as a, as a sort of research idea she turned it into a, a practical tool and created a, a service out of that, that that you know is what Ken became and, and all the stuff around it created the assessments and everything and she was also a really forceful personality yeah. and a really strong thinker about all sorts of stuff so arguing for the, the need for randomized controlled trials for example that was deeply unfashionable but she believed that was right and that was something she was going to stand up for and yeah. she challenged Ofsted for example in a, in, a, in a quite a brave way I suppose and certainly um, very forthright way and there were all sorts of orthodoxies and, and, and sort of powerful people that she took on and uh, kind of sunk her teeth into <laughs> like a, a terrier yeah, and and usually one in certainly in her own terms. Yeah. she didn't always change the world in in the way that she might have wanted, but she definitely had an impact. Yeah, and she helped you form <coughs> your thinking. I guess. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. yeah, in all sorts of ways. Really important, I think, to work with someone like that who just just nudges you along in a direction. Um, and yeah, and and Peter was also right at the heart of that and bringing new thinking about stuff you know and bring uh, innovative assessment I think was probably the thing that I'd one of the things that I would take you know developing PIPs baseline for example where nothing like that existed before people thought you can't assess four-year-old they're just too small and too erratic and they they can't sit still and they you won't get reliable results and yeah and what would you assess anyway because they can't do anything so um, so but Peter wasn't put off by certainty of everyone else in the world that this was impossible he just went ahead and did it yeah and um so i'm gonna we're gonna draw to a close quite soon actually mm -hmm. um i'll have a couple more questions are you working on anything at the minute that you're <coughs> going to publish fairly soon um well i'm doing some bits of data analysis from a project that we've been doing with jeremy hodgen who's at um, ucl now institute which is looking at maths in low attaining maths in key stage three. So this is year nine, really. Kids who are who aren't doing well. They're at the bottom end of performance, 
and at that point they've had 10 years of not doing well in maths mm. and so of course they one of the things they have learned is that they're not very good at doing maths and so they they come to it differently and I suppose the question is in what ways are their understanding is there is the the what's in their head the conceptualization of mathematical ideas how is that different for this low attaining group after 10 years of of not doing very well mm -hmm. than say so our comparison group is a, a group of year five kids who are at the sort of upper end of attainment so in terms of the mathematics what they can do is about the same right um, and the question is are there any differences in the kinds of things they can do or the, the, the dependencies of yeah you know you have to have done this in order to be able to do that kind of thing so we've got an interesting data set and playing around with that and it is Sounds like you'd be having fun with that. Yeah, having a lot of fun with that. I mean, it looks as though actually there aren't as many differences as, as people have thought. There's quite a lot of literature that says there are um, uh, that, that low attainment is qualitatively different. You know, there are, there are kind of gaps that people have, the, mm. the barriers to being able to understand maths is because they have these crucial gaps missing. Yeah. And, and actually it looks as though, I don't, you know, it's a bit early to say this is the finding but it looks as though that isn't really the case actually they're just they're they're, they're on the same journey they're just behind ah. um, and that's not what most of the existing literature has claimed so that makes it interesting yeah very okay and um penultimate question what's been the scariest moment of your career today and equally what's been the proudest yeah <laughs> wow scariest moment I suppose um, I mean there have been occasions where I've had to do talks for either big or quite intimidating audiences you know if you're, if you're saying it if you've got a message for a group of people that is not what they want to hear that's difficult I, I'm, I'm not always the, the gentlest in doing that I think I can be perhaps a bit abrasive but I do I do quite a lot of public speaking on you know education stuff and mostly it's reasonably within my comfort zone yeah but sometimes there'll be something that I think okay this is a bit scary it's a big audience or it's maybe there's another speaker there who I, I'm a bit in awe of for yeah. example yeah. Uh, or certain kinds of audiences and yeah then it would definitely have an edge for which me. are the other speakers that you might be in awe of all uh, right well so I've done events with with John Hattie, for example. Yeah. That always feels like okay, you need to be on your game here, or with Dylan. Yeah. Uh, another one. Um, um, I can remember one one of the early research ed conferences. Actually, I did a talk there, and Dylan was in the audience, and I, I can remember thinking, oh, okay, better get this right then. Yeah. Um, who else? I don't know. Academics, I think, actually. Yeah. They're, they're quite a critical bunch. Yeah. Really. <laughs> And they tell you if you they think you're wrong. Yeah. Well, let's see how they respond to this question. <laughs> um, uh, thank you for your time. Um, we would just have one big question, and then I'll ask you for your last song. If you were in charge of the education system in England for the day, and you could implement one policy or one big structural change, yeah, what would it be? This is a very hard question. Of course it is. Because there isn't just one, unless you cheat and say, well, the one thing is that I would fix everything. Yeah. 
Um, can't do that. You can't do that. And no. uh, also, I wasn't quite sure. This isn't, the answer isn't world peace or anything. No, like exactly. That. Yeah, just make everything perfect. Yeah. That would be the one thing I would do. Yeah. But that's cheating. I assume you won't allow me that. And also for a day. So what does does that mean? You've literally got it for a. Oh, sorry. <laughs> no, no. I'm so glad actually. There's only been one question that you've really kind of challenged me on. So yeah, you basically whether it's a day a week, whatever. Okay. You can only do one it's thing. It's going to take more you than a day. You have the power to do one right. thing or to put in set in stone, okay. put in place the motion to. So, yeah. That okay. can't be reversed. So if I if I take your question literally for a day, I can do one thing. Then I think my answer would be a, a bit trivial, really, which is just you know give everyone a holiday or something like that. Because I think in a day you can't do much, and and teachers work really hard, and you know just a day off would be good. Right. Okay. So that would be that would be my frivolous answer. Right. Which I don't think is probably the answer you want, but I think if if you know if you had if you had the power to do one thing that would yes be a positive influence even if it takes more than a day and even if it's quite a complex yeah. thing I do think it's about it's about teacher expertise teacher skill you know we need to have a profession of teachers who are more skilled and more expert and more knowledgeable and that so so it's a whole series of things around that mm -hmm. it's about culture about how you support people in in that professional learning, how you make people think that's important, how you make people think they can learn to be better and more skilled and more expert. Uh, it's about the kinds of training you offer, the, the you know CPD offer. Mm -hmm. um, it's about how people know how good they are and how they get feedback about what they're doing well and what they're not so the sort of metrics and evaluations like that so that's about 10 things mm, yeah which i know that's cheating but there isn't there isn't just one little no. silver bullet that you could say oh this is the simple thing you know because we'd have done that already yeah it's not going to be that simple. okay um i'm going to ask you a bit of a follow-up question okay. so <coughs> there is no silver bullet and um but if there was one thing that you might think makes a gives us a nudge in the right direction could you choose one thing? Um, I think it's about the demand for really high quality professional learning. I think when when lots of large groups of teachers, a majority of teachers or all teachers, are routinely thinking we need this to be available to us, then the market will start to supply it. Yeah. But at the moment most people don't think they need it or want it or that it's possible and so there isn't demand and yeah. if there isn't demand then no one's going to create it or if they do yeah. it can't be successful and it's quite hard it's a bit of a chicken and egg thing I suppose but I think that feels like the starting point is to create that demand create that culture where people think yeah that being an expert is something you work at and it takes years and you need a lot of help with but it but it's the most important thing you can do is not just to turn up every day and teach the same, but to systematically get better in every aspect of what you do for the whole of your career. Okay, thank you very much. Give us a song to end no. the podcast. <laughs> okay, so the last one, this is really hard because as I say, it could easily have been a hundred and I was sort of thinking, you know, a lot of contenders the, well, Elvis would have definitely uh, could have been a few there. Yeah. Some of the um, some jazz I could have had. 
toyed with Miles Davis. Um, but in the end, I've, the one I've chosen, uh, it's one I'll probably just regret and think, well, why did I choose that one? But you know, you have to choose one. Yeah. So I'm going to go for Sam and Dave's Hold On, I'm Coming. Nice. Which I think is just a, a really good bit of soul, gets a party going kind of thing, if you're a party type of person, which obviously I'm not. <laughs> That's a great way to end.